So tonight is our question and answer night, and as has been the norm of late, I have a great many questions before me again this evening, which is a good thing, but which could become a lengthy thing if I'm not judicious with our time. So I'm going to try to tackle each of these questions adequately, but many of them fairly briefly. And for time's sake, I'm also going to forego the usual time between questions for you to give follow-ups or feedback, trusting that you'll track me down when we're done tonight if you'd like to talk further. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Number one, should a person's motivation to live free from sin be for their own eternal life or for God's glory? Should a person's motivation to live free from sin be for their own eternal life or for God's glory? The short answer is yes. We should be motivated to put away sin both for God's glory and for our own eternal good. And let's just look at both of those motives briefly. First, the glory of God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that whether you eat Or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And the whatever you do includes, of course, the putting away of your sin, the laying aside of the sin that so easily entangles us. And then even more specific to our topic, we have an instance like King David's adultery with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband. And then we have those famous words from Nathan the prophet when he told David in 2 Samuel 12, By this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David's sin, in other words, deeply detracted from the glory of God. And that's why he shouldn't have done it. For the glory of God, he should have been pure. And that's the emphasis of the Apostle Paul as well in Ephesians 5, where he's urging the Ephesian Christians to lay aside things like immorality, greed, covetousness, and where he sums up their right motive by urging them in Ephesians 5.10 to try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Lay aside your sins, in other words, he's saying, because you want to be pleasing to the Lord. Lay aside your sin for the pleasure and the glory of God. And that's the first and must always be the greatest motivation for putting away our sin and living to righteousness. And yet it's also true that we should be motivated by the consideration of our own eternal safety. Not that we're justified by our works, not that we're made right with God, in other words, by the putting away of our sin. We're made right with God by simple faith in Jesus and his putting away of our sin on the cross. And yet, that faith in Christ, which lays hold of Jesus and lays hold of eternal life, is demonstrated as this life goes on by a desire to please him the kind of desire that Paul spoke about in Ephesians 5.10. And where there is little or no desire to please the Lord, where sin can remain in our lives unrepented of and unchecked, we have grave reason to doubt whether we ever believed in Christ at all, and thus whether we are really bound for heaven. And so God can say things like this to us in Hebrews 12, pursue sanctification not just because it's good to grow in the Lord, but pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And that's a motive, isn't it? You might call yourself a Christian, you might say that your faith is in Christ, but if that faith doesn't result in a growing holiness, a growing Christ-likeness, then that faith is not real, and thus you will not see the Lord. And so pursue sanctification, or you're not, not actually a Christian and you're not going to see God. And Jesus is teaching the same theology when he says famously in Matthew 18, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Here's the motivation of whether you will go to heaven or hell placed upon the crux of whether or not you will put away sin, which is why Jesus commands the church later in Matthew 18 to consider people as unbelievers who refuse to put away sin, and which is why we practice that 
at this church. Again, the idea is not that putting away your sin is what saves you, but that putting away your sin is what demonstrates that you have been saved by Christ. Nor is Jesus saying that we must do all of this perfectly to demonstrate that we really belong to him, as though any of us will ever cut off every sin in this life. But though we won't get rid of our sin perfectly or fully in this life, we must do so truly and actually. We will continue to sin, yes. We will continue to stumble, yes. But do we even care? And are we making some progress? Or do we look just like our pagan neighbors? If the latter, then our unwillingness to lay aside our sins should cause us to fear the fires of hell. So the answer is both. We should lay aside our sins both for the glory of God and also out of a concern for our own souls. And incidentally, as I just put a bow on this answer, these two things, the glory of God and our own good, are never actually in conflict. You never have to choose between one or the other. You never have to pick between being motivated for God's sake or being motivated for your own eternal good. The one is always bigger than the other, but they always come together as a pair when we're in Christ. If you are a Christian, then whatever is for God's glory will always be for your eternal good as well. And so the answer is both. Number two, what Bible verses do you suggest for people who call themselves Christians but are sexually immoral? What Bible verses do you suggest for people who call themselves Christians but are sexually immoral? Well, I would perhaps or probably walk them through some of the same passages and some of the same theology that we just considered under the last question. I would want to show them from places like Ephesians 5, that a Christian wants to please the Lord. And I'd ask them if their immorality therefore demonstrates that they want to please the Lord. And then I'd want to give them verses like Hebrews 12, 14, pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Matthew 18, 8 and 9, about cutting off your hand or foot, plucking out your eye. And I'd also probably want to back up in Ephesians 5, and look at Ephesians 5, 5, which says that this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. No immoral or impure person has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ because here is their particular sin mentioned so that they can't shrug off Matthew 18 or Hebrews 12 as being about other people or other kinds of sin or other kinds of holiness. This you know with certainty, Paul says, that no immoral or impure, impure person has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ, Ephesians 5.5. 5. And, of course, I'd explain to them, if they didn't grasp it already, that these verses don't teach justification by works, but rather works as a necessary evidence of our union with Christ. But I wouldn't want to dwell on that nuance so much as to obscure the black and white of the warning texts that I've just been giving them. I'd want to hammer it home very clearly and with no obscurity that if you continue in this sin and refuse to repent, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And I'd urge them, if this sin is not repented of, you have no hope of heaven. And therefore you have no claim to the name of Christians, of a Christian. And then if they didn't listen, back to Matthew 18, a little further down the page, I would take one or two others with me and try to convince them again. And if they still didn't listen, I would bring it to the church and so on through that process in Matthew 18, either until they repented or demonstrated themselves before the whole church to definitely be an unbeliever. Which is to say that there are real Christians who fall into sexual immorality and repent. There aren't just people who call themselves Christians, but there are people who actually are Christians who do fall into sexual sin. But the difference between the two is whether they repent. Which again is why we practice Matthew 18, church discipline, as a church. Not only as it relates to sexual immorality, but a whole host of other sins as well. We want to see genuine Christians repent, and we want to see phony Christians come to terms with reality and really see their face and their condition in the mirror. And if they prove to be phony Christians and won't repent, we want to remove the name of Christians from the pretenders, both for their own good so that they're not deceived, and for 
Christ's good so that they don't carry his name around the city with them through the mud. Number three, why is Jephthah included in the annals of faith in Hebrews 11? Was the vow that he made foolish? Why is Jephthah included in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11? Was the vow that he made foolish? So let's begin by reading Jephthah's story in Judges 11, and then we'll come back and talk about Hebrews 11. Turn there with me, if you will, Judges 11. We won't read the whole account, but we'll look at verses 1 through 6, and then we'll skip down and read verses 29 through 40. Judges 11.1, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with them. It came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. And then we come to the most memorable part of Jephthah's story, beginning in verse 29. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. Then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering." So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Aror to the entrance of Manith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel, Karamim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourine and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions." And he said, Go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Now we have two questions. Why is this man included in the Faith Hall of Fame, as it's called in Hebrews 11? And was his vow foolish? And the questions, of course, go together because the, the sense of it is, how could a man who made such a foolish vow and sacrificed his daughter also be included in the annals of the greatest men and women of faith? Well, there are at least two schools of thought on Jephthah. One is that, yes, of course, Jephthah's vow was an exceedingly foolish one. Maybe he expected a sheep or a calf to meet him at his front gate, and he never considered the possibility that he might be committing himself to sacrifice another human being, let alone his own daughter. And in that case, a very foolish vow indeed. And so the question comes, how could this man be considered a hero of the faith in Hebrews 11? And the answer has to be, he is a man of faith, he's a hero of faith in the same way that David, the adulterer and the murderer, is in Hebrews 11, and the same way that Samson, who is quite a fool in many ways himself, is in that same hall of fame. Sinful and foolish as these men were in moments of weakness, at the end of the day they did trust God, even in spite of great sins that they committed, and they accomplished by faith great things through and for 
God. That's probably the primary line of thinking on Jephthah. But some time ago, I came across an article by a man of whom I think very highly named David Murray, who has an entirely different take that I'd never considered before. In fact, he lists ten reasons why we should think, rethink the idea that Jephthah made a foolish vow and rethink the idea that he kept it even more foolishly. Now, not all of Murray's reasons are convincing to me. One of them, for instance, is the fact that Jephthah is a, listed as a hero of faith in Hebrews 11, which, says Murray, seems hard to fathom if he sacrificed his own daughter. But that logic, as I was just saying in reverse a moment ago, would preclude David and Samson. I'm not convinced by that. He also mentions the possibility of an alternate way of translating verse 31, which I won't go into, but which would change the whole complexion of the passage. But I'm unsure of that as well because no translation of the many I consulted renders verse 31 the way Murray translates it. But more significantly, and this is just something for you to chew on, Murray also mentions the possibility that even if Jephthah did make a foolish vow to sacrifice whatever came out of the house, he may have realized it was foolish and repented of the rash vow and paid it off with money, which was allowed in Leviticus 27. So that when we're told that he did to her according to the vow he had made, which he had made in verse 39, it may be that According to Leviticus 27, he paid a redemption price for this person that he had vowed to the Lord so that his daughter could be dedicated to the Lord now, not as a burnt offering, Murray says, but more like what we would today call a nun, which is commensurate, says Murray, with her mourning in verses 37 and 38, not over the loss of her life, but over her virginity, in which could also be why verse 39 mentions that she had no relations with a man. Murray's take is that Jephthah may have redeemed her with money and set her aside to the Lord to live a life of singleness all of her days, and therefore she's mourning in verses 37 through 39 because she'll never be married or have children. And he mentions other factors as well, which may indicate that our typical view of Jephthah as a man of faith who made an incredibly foolish vow may not be correct, at least as it relates to the foolishness of his vow. If you want to read his whole article, his blog is headhearthand.org, and you can go to the blog section of that website and look up Jephthah, and you can find it. I have to say his interpretation is appealing. I like to think that this woman didn't die on a pyre, like we probably have thought, but I'm not sure I've chewed on his reasoning enough to firmly decide one way or the other. But either way, foolish vow or not, and whether he kept his foolish vow or not, Jephthah was, according to Hebrews 11, a man of faith. And by that faith, he delivered God's people in times of old, which is why he finds himself rightly in Hebrews 11. He was... At the end of the day, a man of faith. Number four, Solomon's wisdom didn't save Solomon. Would it have been better if he'd asked God for something else? Solomon's wisdom didn't save him. Would it have been better if he'd asked God for something else? The the idea is that Solomon didn't finish his life very well. So maybe he should have asked God differently than he asked in 1 Kings 3. The question does come from 1 Kings 3, where God appeared to Solomon and told him to ask whatever he wished. And Solomon asked asked the Lord for wisdom to lead God's people rightly, discerning between good and evil. And I think we have to say, just very briefly, that Solomon did ask for the right thing because God praised him very highly for what he asked. 1 Kings 3, 10 through 14, let me just read it to you. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. 
If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. I think Solomon asked for the right thing as king of God's people, but the key to his later failure and foolishness was not that he asked for wisdom wrongly when he should have asked for something else. The key to his failure was that he turned away from the wisdom that God gave him. God showed him right from wrong and gave him a discerning heart just like Solomon asked, but Solomon did wrong just the same. And so his problem at the end of the day was the same as ours. Romans chapter 1, even though they, you, me, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Even though we have wisdom from God, we don't live according to it so often. But thanks be to God. As Paul writes later in the same letter to the Romans, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ becomes our wisdom and our righteousness when we flee to him. Number five, how do you save a relationship when you're doing all you can do but nothing is working? How do you save a relationship when you're doing all you can do but nothing is working? Well, with a question like this one, if I were having a personal conversation with whoever asked this, um, I would ask some questions about the particular relationship and maybe give even more specific ideas and counsel based on the details of the problem. So if you're that person who asked this question, I'd be glad to have that conversation with you sometime soon, and we can go into more specifics about your particular case. Let me know that, and we'll set up a time to talk. But, but in a more general sense, if you're talking about a relationship that's not well, and you've done everything you can do, and nothing's working, what, what is the biblical wisdom there? I think I'd say four things in general. First, Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In other words, while you can't guarantee that the other person will meet you in the middle or even that he or she will respond at all, make sure that you do all that you can do to make things right. And of course, the question presumes that that's being done, and I trust in this case that it is. But we always do have to check ourselves on this and make sure that we've done, make sure that we're doing all that depends on us and not just telling ourselves that we are without really going the whole way. Sometimes you can get a little bit bothered with somebody and you can feel like you've done everything that you need to do, but inside your heart there's still a a catch, a bitterness, where you're not doing really what you know you ought to do. So make sure in the first place that you have made the appropriate efforts, that you've made the necessary apologies, that you've forgiven the sins in question and so on, and make sure you can honestly speak with our questioner tonight about having done all that you can do. But then secondly, if you've taken care of number one, if you really have done all that you can do, don't beat yourself up or feel guilty if it doesn't work. That's why Paul inserts those words, if possible, so far as it depends on you, there in Romans 12. Because relationships are a two-way street, and you can only do what you can do. And if you've done that, and if the other person remains aloof or unforgiving or cool towards you, then you mustn't feel guilty. Be sad, yes, but feel guilty, no. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Third, both when you reach the point when you've done everything else that you can do and even before you reach that point, pray. Pray. Maybe this is the most important thing of everything I'm going to say to this question. You can't ultimately move a person's heart. You can't make them forgive. You can't make them apologize. You can't make them come back. You can't make them like you or believe you or trust you. But you can pray, and you can still be praying, even when many years have passed by, that God might restore a friendship, that God might right a wrong, that God might bring a person to forgive you, that God, in short, would do what only he can do. Make sure you pray. And then fourth, finally, keep your door open. A time might come, as with the prodigal son in Luke 15, 
when you have to let a person go and win by their choice, not yours, the fellowship is severed. But even once you've done what you can do, God may not be finished doing what he plans to do. And the prodigal might someday come back. The friend might pick up the phone again someday and call you, and you must be ready, like the prodigal's father and like the heavenly father, to run and to embrace and to throw a welcome party for that person when they come back. That's what you're praying for, I hope, and you must be ready to do it. So then, do all you can do with a strained relationship. And if you have, don't feel guilty if things still don't work. And always pray and keep your door open so that the estranged one can always come back. And if this is your question, I'd be glad to talk to you further um, about this sometime soon. Number six, how do you know when you should be baptized? How do you know when you should be baptized? An excellent question. And for the answer, let's have a look at a couple of key biblical passages on baptism. The first you'll find in what we commonly call the Great Commission in the last three verses of the Gospel of Matthew. So turn there with me, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So you see, verse 19 is a verse on baptism. It's not the first thing, it's not the primary thing that it's about, but it is a verse about baptism. And who does Jesus say there in verse 19 should be baptized? Disciples, right? Go and make disciples, baptizing them. So you don't get baptized because you grew up religious or you were born into a Christian family or in order to join a church. You're baptized when you become a disciple of Jesus, And a disciple is simply another word for someone who is committed to learn from, to apprentice under, to sit at the feet of, to follow the leadership of a master teacher. That's what a disciple is. He's a follower and a learner and an imitator of a master. And so the people whom Jesus commands should be baptized are the people who have made that commitment of discipleship. People who, as we sometimes sing, have decided to follow Jesus. Go and make disciples, baptizing them. And how would you know that you've become Christ's disciple? He's not walking on the earth physically like he was in those days so that Matthew and others literally followed him wherever he went. How would you know today that you are one of Christ's disciples? Well, there are many ways that evidence your discipleship, one of which we discussed in those first couple of questions. But the first way that you can see that, you are, that you've become a disciple of Jesus, we can notice over in another famous passage in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Again, you can turn there with me, Acts 2, 41. You may remember on that day in Acts 2, Peter preached the good news of Jesus powerfully, telling people of Christ and urging them to repent. And you'll see in verse 41 that those who had received his word those who had believed what he had preached about Christ, in other words, and who had repented of their sins like he told them to do in verse 38, those who had received his word by repenting and believing on Christ did the next thing Peter told them to do, which was to be baptized. So then those who had received his word were baptized. So How do you know that you've become a disciple of Jesus? And thus, how do you know that you're one of those whom Jesus commanded should be baptized? Over in Matthew 28, when you have received the words about Jesus, when you've believed on him, come to trust him as your Savior, come to rely on him to save you, when you've received the word about Jesus by faith, and when you've repented of your sins. This is the beginning of discipleship. And the next step, the step that publicly announces that you are a disciple is to be baptized. So then, how do you know when to be baptized? When you've believed in the Lord Jesus and repented of your sins, thereby becoming one of his disciples. 
And if that describes you tonight, whether you ask this question or not, if that describes you tonight but you've never been baptized as a portrait of your discipleship, then come and see me. And let's talk about that next step of discipleship as well. Number seven, should a child make contributions to his or her church? Should a child make contributions to his or her church? I'm not sure if this is a question about financial contributions or a question about just pitching in and helping. I'll answer it briefly. In either case, I'll answer it briefly by saying, A, the first thing, the most important thing, children, is that you repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus, just like we've been talking about. That's far more important than anything you must do for or on behalf of the church, that you actually become a disciple of Jesus. And then he will show you what you should do in the church. And yet, B, once you become a disciple, or even when you're learning what that means, children, there are plenty of ways that it would please the Lord for you to pitch in and serve the church. Some of the children here have done things just in recent months, like packing shoeboxes, collecting money for the shoeboxes, giving to Lottie Moon, helping collect cups after the Lord's Supper, helping in the yard, working in the sound booth, visiting the elderly, and so on. And all these things are most welcome, both from children who already are disciples of Jesus and from those who are learning to be. But then see, you must always remember, children and adults, whatever you may do for the Lord in the church or out, it is not your hand, what your hands have done, says the hymn writer, that can save you, but what Jesus has done on your behalf. So don't think, I need to start serving the church. I need to give money to the church because it will make up for my sins or it will make me right in God's sight or somehow God will then save me. No, you trust Jesus to save you and then you work for him and in his church because you're grateful for what he's done and because the church benefits from your contribution and because it pleases the Lord to see your heart glad to serve him. So there is a place for children to contribute to the work of the church. Number eight, take a little longer on this one um, because it's a little more involved and maybe a hot-button question in our culture in in some ways. Number eight, does Leviticus 19.28 prohibit tattoos? Does Leviticus 19.28 prohibit tattoos? Go ahead and turn to Leviticus 19.28. While you're turning there, before we look at Leviticus 19, it's important to note tonight that even should we be convinced that tattoos are okay in and of themselves, there may be motives, as John Piper said in his own online Q&A on tattoos, there may be motives that would make our getting a tattoo sinful, even if God may not condemn the tattoo itself. There could be reasons of foolishness or cultural associations that we're attaching to ourselves with tattoos or there could be idols in our hearts that we want to write on our skin that might cause us any one of these things to put ink on our bodies in ways that would be sinful even if the tattoo itself is neither here nor there and they would be sinful if we pursued them in some other way as well besides a tattoo. I think that might be just as big a question as the one that's been asked especially in our day of the proliferation of body ink, not just whether people are getting tatted, but why. Is it just a cultural trend, like certain kinds of haircuts or skinny jeans, or are there sometimes things deeper in some people's psyche that bring them to permanently put ink on their bodies? And if the latter, are any of those deeper motives troubling? I just listed a few possible troubling motives, and I'll give you another Um, probably before we're done. But the question of why, John Piper reminds us, is really important. And I agree with him even before we get to the question of whether. But the question is about whether or if tattoos are okay. So let's turn to Leviticus 19, if you haven't done so already, and have a look both at that verse and at the surrounding context. I want to begin reading in verse 20 and just read down through verse 32. Now, if a man lies carnally with a woman who is a slave acquired for another man, but who has in no way been redeemed nor given her freedom, there shall be punishment. They shall not, however, be put to death because she was not free. 
He shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord to the doorway of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. The priest shall also make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin which he has committed, and the sin which he has committed will be forgiven him. When you enter the land and plant all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. In the fifth year you are to eat of its fruit, that its yield may increase for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat anything with blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. You shall not round off the side growth of your beards, nor harm the edges of your beard, the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a harlot so that the land will not fall to harlotry and the land become full of lewdness. You shall keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged and you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. Now, the context here is important because it presents to us, all in the span of these 13 verses, three different types, the three different types of laws that we find in the Old Testament. And I wonder if you remember what they are. There are in the Old Testament ceremonial laws, laws that had to do with things like the temple and the sacrifices and the priests, and with various outward markings of food and dress and so on that were to make Israel physically unique and distinct from their neighbors. And all of these laws were fulfilled and thus abrogated by the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ and by his gathering to himself a people marked off by faith rather than by outward national identity markers. That's why circumcision is such a hot topic in Galatians, if you remember our studies there. It's no longer necessary. Ceremonial laws. Then there were also civil laws in the Old Testament, which functioned like our civil laws today. There were listings of punishments that fit certain crimes. There were ways that the land could and couldn't be used. There were other sorts of codes that specifically governed the life of Israel as a political entity, the laws of the land, if you will. All of which laws of the land in Israel are instructive to us today, but they're not binding because we don't live in political Israel and we're not told in the New Testament to follow the laws of Israel, but to obey the laws of our own governments. And then there were moral laws, which simply consist of moral commandments, instructions about what is simply right and what is simply wrong in all ages, and which, unlike the other two sets of laws, we must continue to keep today. And, of course, the the obvious example, the prime example of that in this third category of moral laws is the Ten Commandments. And it's interesting, in this brief passage here in Leviticus 19 that we read, we have all three kinds of laws intermingled together in these 13 verses. We have ceremonial law in verses 21 and 22, where instructions are given regarding a particular kind of sacrifice for sin. And ceremonial law also in verse 27, where we have these grooming instructions given that are part of the ceremonial marking off of Israel as physically distinct from their neighbors. And then we have civil law as regards to the legal ramifications of slavery in verse 20 and the planting of fruit trees in the promised land in verses 23 through 25. And then the bits about divination and prostitution and the Sabbath and witchcraft and honoring the elderly are moral laws that apply in every era. But what about verse 28? Where does it fit with its instructions about cutting and tattooing? Depending on how you interpret it, verse 28 might be ceremonial law or it might be moral law. In other words, the question is, are these instructions in Leviticus 19.28 about not cutting oneself for the dead and not tattooing your body, are they moral laws that apply to every culture in every era and thus to us today? Or were these just ceremonial culture markers like the instructions about beards in verse 27 that applied to the Jews but not to us directly? Is verse 28 along the same lines as verse 27? So that 
what is being said here is simply that the Jewish people were to be distinct in times of old by the way they wore their beards and by their absence of mourning scars and tattoos. Or is there something more long-lasting in play here? Different godly people have answered the question in different ways, and that's important to remember. The fact that the tattooing instructions here follow so soon after the instructions about beards, which are clearly only ceremonial, may mean that tattoos fall into the same category, such that in the same way we wouldn't call it sin if a man clipped his beard, neither should we have any problem, moral problem with somebody who gets a tattoo. That could be the bottom and top of it. But then you could also note that even closer than the connection with the beards in verse 27 is the connection here in this same verse 28 with cutting oneself from the dead, for the dead, making scars on your body as a form of lamentation over or perhaps veneration of the deceased. And I think most of us, knowing what the Bible says about grieving with hope, would find this practice, cutting yourself for the dead, a little more spiritually troubling, even in this New Testament era, than we would find a friend getting his beard cut off. And the tattoos are mentioned close to the beard, but in the same breath with this troubling example of cutting oneself for the dead. So were the tattoos that are spoken of here in verse 28 also some sort of lamentation for the dead? And is that why they're prohibited, because of their connection with this wrong response to death? And if so, does that make tattoos that are not for the dead okay? Does it mean, in other words, that purely artistic tattoos are not covered at all by this verse? Or are the tattoos in verse 28 unconnected to the reason from the cuts altogether, and yet still in the category of a moral command, and thus still prohibited for us today, whatever? the reason for the tattoo. It's really hard to definitively say, actually. I hope you can see there are multiple layers to the interpretation of this text, which makes the application not so cut and dried. Pardon the pun. And that, somebody, Colin, thank you. Colin got that. He's with me. It means, though, because, because this is not an easy text to get to the bottom of and to really understand the application for our day, that means at least three things by way of application, one of which is personal to me, and I'll just tell you where I'm at, and maybe it'll be helpful for you. And the other two applications, I think, are definitely applicable to us all. The first more personal note is that since I'm not positive whether Leviticus 19.28 is speaking of tattoos as we mostly know them, artistic tattoos, or whether it's referencing tattoos that were given specifically in connection with death. And since I'm not absolutely certain whether this might be a moral command or a ceremonial and thus whether it still applies to me or doesn't, since I'm not certain about this, my personal approach to this matter is that I wouldn't feel comfortable getting a tattoo or recommending you to get one. Because there's nothing in the Bible that says that they're necessary or good. And there might be this one verse indicating that they are forbidden. And so I personally lean on the side of caution. But secondly, and having said that, because I don't believe we have certainty on the meaning of Leviticus 19.28 and its application to us today, all of us, myself included, it seems to me, must then exercise caution not to be judgmental on this question. Those people who fall more where I do must be careful not to throw stones at those who believe artistic tattoos are okay. And those who are for tattoos must not accuse of legalism those who avoid them out of a desire to be cautious concerning the law of God. It's not an issue that should divide Christians, it seems to me. And then thirdly, let me say that since this verse is in the Bible... I do think we're treading on careless ground if we make up our mind on the question of body ink either way without thinking Leviticus 19.28 through. Whether tattoos are permissible or not, it is foolish to throw out the possibility that they might be prohibited and to classify that as legalism and old fogeyism without having come to terms with this verse. And in the same way, it's foolish to rail against tattoos because you think they're distasteful and or because I think there's a verse in the Bible that prohibits them without actually having looked up and studied that verse. But then having thought it through, 
whichever side you come down on, and particularly if you come down on the side of favoring tattoos or saying that they are okay, it's worth then going on to think about motive. Why am I doing this? It may be that I honestly just like the artwork. But it might sometimes be that something deeper is going on in my heart, which if I examine it might be a sin issue, whether I record that sin issue in ink or not. Is the thing, for instance, is the thing that I'm wanting to portray on my skin an idol to me? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Am I responding to death, perhaps, in an unwise way? One of the reasons people get tattoos in our culture is as a response to death. Am I, by means of this tattoo, associating myself with sinful elements in my culture that I will regret carrying around with me for decades after? All those are questions worth asking. But then finally, we definitely need to say in closing that there will be lots of people in heaven who had tattoos on earth. I don't know whether the tattoos will be on their new bodies in the new earth, And I'm not certain if the tattoos are right or wrong on this earth, as I've said. But I do know that if someone has wrongly gotten a tattoo for whatever reason, the blood of Jesus will cover it, even if it can't be removed from their physical skin. And I also know that I won't be in heaven because my skin is free from ink. Because there are plenty of other marks against me that would even more assuredly keep me out. But the blood of Jesus covers them too. The marks in the flesh that define us as Christians are not those etched by a stylus in our flesh, but the prints of the nails in his. And so we draw our unity and our hope from that. Now I have to move quickly to number nine. Why is a dove the symbol of the Holy Spirit? Why is a dove the symbol of the Holy Spirit? I think the simple answer is that at the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in a visible way, Luke tells us, in bodily form. And it did so, the Holy, or he, the Holy Spirit, did so in a way that reminded the gospel writers of the way a dove eases down and lands upon its perch. I'm not sure whether the physical form the Spirit took that day actually the form itself looked like a dove, or if it's simply the way the Spirit descended that remained, uh, that reminded the apostles of a dove's descent. But in all four Gospels, the Spirit is referred to descending upon Jesus like a dove. And so Christians have come to think of the Spirit as dove-like and to sometimes symbolize him in that form. Understand, of course, that the Holy Spirit is not actually a dove, and that the bodily form he took on at Jesus' baptism was just a temporary thing. The Holy Spirit does not have a body like we have a body. And so the image of a dove is just a descriptor of how he descended that day or perhaps how he showed himself that day, but it's not a depiction of what the Holy Spirit is like in his essence. And yet it is a beautiful picture of the Spirit descending upon Christ that day. And it's a marvelous thing that if we are in Christ, the Spirit has come upon us and into us as well and will come to us at various times in great power so that we might proclaim the good news praise god for the ministry of the holy spirit now finally number 10 should christians make new year's resolutions and if so what would be some good goals for 2017 should christians make new year's resolutions and if so what would be some good goals for 2017 Well, there's nowhere in the Bible that commands us that we have to make resolutions at the beginning of our calendar year, so you needn't feel guilty tonight if you haven't made any. And yet, one of the more famous verses in the Bible is a call for people to make a resolution, to resolve to do something. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Make a resolution about whom you will serve. So resolutions can be a good thing. Now that resolution that's called for in Joshua, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, that resolution is, of course, the kind of resolution you don't just make for 2017, but one that you must make once and for all. And yet the practical application of that overarching resolution means that we have to make certain subsidiary choices, certain subsidiary resolves time and again. Sometimes daily, 
that will serve that larger resolution of serving the Lord. All the time in the Christian life, we're presented with decisions to resolve to do certain things differently or to lay aside certain besetting sins and to sin no more in that particular way or to begin to give to this certain ministry or to begin praying for so-and-so. And the list could go on and on with us itemizing ways in which under the great banner of resolving to serve the Lord, there are all these various ways and various resolutions that we must commit to in doing so. And so resolves, resolutions are a part of the Christian life, whether we make them in January or April or August or whenever, and even if we don't always write them down like we might do at the new year. But since there is a new year, and since the dawning of a new year does cause many of us to take stock and to be just slightly more motivated to re-up for certain things or to make fresh resolve to do other things, I say capture the momentum. If you're built that way, make New Year's resolutions if they'll help you daily and over the next 365 days to keep that all-important resolve of serving the Lord. Don't be legalistic about them, of course. Don't be unrealistic about them either. But there is a place in the Christian life for resolving to serve God and for making smaller resolves under that umbrella that will get you to the larger goal. So what would be some good ones for 2017? Well, I just direct your attention in closing to the article in this week's bulletin, which was based on these words in Hebrews 12. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. There are at least three resolves there. And under each, there could be numerous smaller resolves that could be made to help you keep those big three. So then, in 2017, I resolve to lay aside the sin which so easily entangles me, to lay aside my besetting sin or sins. And depending on what the sin or sins is or are which entangle you, there will be subordinate resolves, things that you will resolve that will enable you to lay aside the sin. And you have to figure out what those details are based on the nature of your sin. But you could resolve to lay aside the sin which so easily entangles you and to do the other things that you need to do in life to make sure that you lay it aside. Also, in 2017, I resolve to run with endurance the race that is set before me. And again, depending on the ways in which you are tempted to slacken your pace or to lay down on the side of the track or to rest on your laurels, you will need to make certain subsidiary resolves that will help you run with endurance. And then in 2017, I resolve to fix my eyes on Jesus, which is one of the resolves that will keep you running the race. I resolve to keep Christ filling up the windshield of my gaze. I resolve to keep Christ in the center of my attention. And therefore, I resolve to put away certain distractions. I resolve to give myself afresh to the word of God written, to the word of God preached, wherein I must go to see and encounter this Jesus. So if you're making resolves for 2017, or if this last question makes you think that maybe you should, begin with Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, perhaps, and work your way out from there. In 2017, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus.